let's get, let's get started. Uh, we have um, about the same amount of information to get through as last week, so it should be perfect. We ended just on time for Q&A and all that sort of thing. If you guys were here last week or if you listened to the, what is it, a podcast, an audio file online, then you're aware that we ended just around the Council of Nicaea. We actually haven't finished it, but we got to, you know, most of the information relevant, ending with this creed here, much of which, which is pretty straightforward, although the word begotten is still not defined. Uh, the Son is begotten of the Father. That's still not defined. It's not entirely clear from reading this, uh, everything that we're going to need to know to make the Trinity philosophically consistent. This leads to problems we're going to see. So just be ready for that coming. Um, as a quick summary of the council here, uh, the, and the main point that the Nicenes, those followers of this creed, you can just say Orthodox Christians, uh, wanted to make is that the Son and the Father are homoousius. If you guys recall, that means same substance, or of the same substance. It's just a Greek word, homo, same, usia, which that word is going to be used a bunch today, usia, substance, or, or essence, uh, would probably actually be a closer translation from the Greek. That's the main point. Now, if you guys recall, this word on its own actually leads to more confusion than clarity, you can argue. You really can. Uh, we would believe the Son and the Father and the Spirit are homoousius, but if you hear it, it can lead to confusion, and you hear it in, in, even in our language, same substance, same essence, same thing. Is that what you're saying? The Son and the Father are the same thing, just different names? It sounds like modalism, and if you guys remember, uh, modalism is the three-mask view. God is one essence, but he wears three different masks, and they change throughout history. Um, but they can even change on a daily basis, I guess. So, still confusing. We're not there yet. Now, also, and this is going to be of importance, but it also kind of just, you know, rolls into a funny joke. Uh, the Arians, that are those followers of Arius, had a problem with any word that's not in the Bible. If the word wasn't used in the Bible... They thought we shouldn't use it, right? And so they had a problem with homoousius and argued against it at the council. Uh, the Nicenes responded with, it might not be in the Bible, but neither is incarnation, but we think we believe that. And homoousius fairly and adequately summarizes the relationship of the Son and the Father, at least in terms of equality. Uh, the Arians, I often hear it joke, scholars love this, they're the first fundamentalists. If it's not in the Bible, I won't believe it right? I'm not from the South. That was my best attempt, but it is, um, uh, there's fundamentalists everywhere. Uh, well, there's all kinds of things like quantum physics uh, that are not in the Bible, but we still believe it, right? Well, so Aaron's had a problem there. Now, I want to move on here to uh, where this went because of some of the in inadequacies of the language. So let's fast forward from 325, which is the year of the council, to 381, which they didn't know yet, but that's going to be the next council. These were turbulent years. This council ended, the bishops went home, like, sweet, we got answers, homoousius, awesome. But over time, people realized this is really inadequate for all the reasons I've just brought up. 
The Son and the Father aren't the same. It sounds like we're modalists. We're not modalists, though. How do we distinguish the Father and the Son? And the Spirit, of course, but Father and the Son was the first point of controversy. So this led to a debate, and a new group uh, emerges here, and they're called the Originists. This is a little, is this, I thought it was well-focused. Now it appears not to be. Is that okay? That's better, okay. So the Nicenes are those followers of the Nicene Creed. That's easy. We just call them Orthodox Christians who are still confused. And then the Originists. They're named after Origen of Alexandria, a hero of the faith who's also super weird. And his view led to kind of some confusion. And you're going to see this in a second. The Originists' problem was that the Nicenes sound like modalists. What you just said, that the son and the father are the same, they're not meaning that, but it can sound like that, homoousius, that's modalism, but that's already been condemned in earlier regional councils. Nobody wants to be a modalist, right? So what do the originists do? They pro pro propose a new word. The originists propose, um, it's just, you know, one letter difference, but it's a very big different meaning, homoousius. The, uh, the son and the father are homoiousia. That's of similar substance. Homoi, similar. Right? So homo, same. Homoi, similar. Now, this, you can argue, is an upgrade over Arius. Uh, Arius argued, if anything, they are heterousius. They are different altogether, substance. So this is trying to be a mediating position, and it's proof that when you're in a medi mediating position, sometimes it doesn't lead to any improvement, at least in this case, because you can hear it, well, wait, if the son and the father are similar, but they're not the same, doesn't it kind of sound like Arianism all over again? The son's lesser than the father? Is that what you're saying? Many originists seem to imply it because they argued... And this is following Origen, who's kind of like a really good theologian, but again, this is confused here. They argue that there's three hypostases, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's okay, of varying rank. The Father's the greatest, the Son's the second, the Spirit's the third. Now, Origen, if you guys remember from last week, and I'm bringing this up in case you weren't, this is all review right now, kind of. If you remember, he was influenced by Neoplatonism. I'm not going to get into all the nitty-gritty here, but it thought of the divine life as the upper three uh, levels. The one being the father, or as, as uh, Origen saw it, the noose, the divine mind, the logos, being the son, and then the soul, the world soul, I don't know, soul being the Holy Spirit. And Origen just kind of went, hey, look, it works. Neoplatonism, Christianity, got it. Now, Origen, Origen is brilliant. Remember, he wrote 800 books. Um, I'm rushing his thinking here. He did tend to equate the three in rank, but he suggested some sort of subordination. And so my point is that these Originists are following him. I don't want to be fair to Origen, but they're following him, and there's three different levels. That's how the son and the father are different. Now, if you push back and you're like, whoa, 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 the son's God too, they're going to be like, of course, the son is God. You see that? But the son is less than the father. The father is eternal, ineffable, uh, outside of space-time. The son, though, is not. The son's in space-time. The son you can speak about. He's not ineffable. 
right? So this leads, ironically, to just a new form of Arianism. So here's the, it's the giant like church history joke. The Council of Nicaea convened in 325 to destroy Arianism. After the Council of Nicaea, Arianism was the most popular view by far. So if you're ever like watching History Channel, the Arians were actually the majority. Well, they're, at, they're right between these years. They're wrong to suggest that in general. In the early church, if you said the sun was a creature, the sun was a created being, you would have been ousted very quickly. But Arius made it cool and popular and woke. Right? Um, so there you go. You guys got it down now. Uh, it's a lot of confusion still, but you can start to see where the church is going to fix things. It was on the Nicenes to offer a distinction between the Father and the Son. They failed. It's the Nicene's fault here. They failed, and we're going to see it resolved in the next council. They knew it was faltering and it was failing, but they didn't know how to get the philosophy straight. So a variation of Arius's view is still in play. And just remember, Arius argued there was a time when the sun was not. Or rather, the sun was a created being. The sun is just a... He's a god, and he's god even in some sense, but he's lesser than the father, and he was created in space-time. All right? That's the key. Now, um, from 325 to 381, there's some other popular heresies that this council is going to respond to. We already looked at the Neo-Arians, or the Arians, you can just say. It's an upgrade of Arius's view. They didn't like to call the sun a creature, but they, call, uh, they implied, I should say, they implied the son was a creature. All right, we already got this view. The son is less than the father. And after the son was created by the father, they would argue, the son created the world. And so we worship the son because he's our God, but he's not the God. Uh, there's a higher being behind the face of the son, which, by the way, that contradicts Jesus very flatly in many places. He's, remember, he tells Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, you can see God in the face of the Son. So the Nicenes know the Arians are wrong here, but they don't know how to be consistent with their own philosophy. The next view that we're not going to talk much of, and it's really a long name, Pneumatomachian, right? Who, I'm a Pneumatomachian. Well, I'm out of energy from saying that word. These are those that they did agree that the Father and the Son are equal, and even homoousius, but the Spirit is not God. This, oops, the Spirit is less than God, second rank. So Numa Tamakian, it's the denier of the divinity of Numa, the Spirit. The third view is a little more complex, and we have a board, which I wasn't expecting, and this makes it a lot easier to do this part. You really kind of have to draw this out to understand the philosophy of anthropology back in that day. And this is coming from a guy named Apollinarius, or Apollinaris, it's usually shortened to, and the view is called Apollinarianism. Now, in that day, when you think in terms of like, what is a human being, what is a human being composed of, most people in this room, unless you have a Pentecostal or Greek Orthodox background, you're going to say soul, body, body, soul, right? Well, in Greek uh, philosophy and early Greek Christians, they held to three different 
uh, components or constituents of humanity. You're going to think in terms of body, soul. They're going to say that as well. There's body, soul. The third, and there is a kind of hierarchy here, but they're not trying to say that the body's evil or something. Don't think that. I used to think that. I've had teachers that were unfair to Greek philosophy. That's not what they hold to. But there is a sort of ascending quality here. So body is easy. We all have bodies, right? Uh, it's the physical world. We're partaking in atoms. They would say that in the ancient world too, right? It comes from Democritus atomism. Uh, there's the physical stuff to us, right? Your neurology, everything else. Now, animals have a body. Rocks have a body. Humans have a body. Everything in space-time has a body, right? Um, now, the soul is the next level. Think of that. This is really rough because it doesn't translate. So to make it simple, think of it either in terms of your uh, moral consciousness um, or even in terms of your own mental like awareness. You know how when you look into a dog's eyes, you know it, well, it's not human, but it's not a rock. It's aware in a way a plant isn't. You know what I mean? Like you're seeing, that's the soul. They would see this as something that both animals and humans have. Um, by the way, you can make the Bible, there, there's a debate on what, what's the Bible's view. Is it body, soul, body, soul, spirit? Open debate. That's a fun one. Uh, in our tradition, they tend towards body, soul, but there's a, a lot of freedom here. Uh, I, can, I can make the Bible say this easily. Um, so soul, yeah, a, uh, animal, human have the soul where only like, you know, plants, rocks, etc. have body. Now, the spirit's something only humans have, and that they identified most closely with whatever the image of God is. And typically, they identified the image of God traditionally um, in terms of intellect and will. Intellect, like, you know, brain power, and will, volitional choosing capacity. I can choose. My dog's sort of instinctual. You can argue your dog has a will, but not in the same sense you might say we do, right? Now, this is what Apollinaris is going to say. He's going to jump in here, and he's going to say, Jesus has a human body and a human soul. But back in that day, they thought of the human spirit, or this is often translated mind, and that's fair because he uses the word psyche. Psyche, mind, spirit. I know it gets really confusing, so I'm simplifying. But uh, he, he argued, uh, no, sorry, back in that day, they, they assumed and held to, in general, that sin arose from our human spirit, our mind, our psyche, right? The ability to choose. Remember, that was one of the components of this, choose to sin. So he argued Jesus couldn't have had a human spirit because if he did, he would have sinned, obviously, Right? You see how he's kind of like following his own logic built on other logic. It makes sense, so he just rejected that Jesus had a human spirit. Now, Apollinaris, remember, these like heretics, they're not nasty people who are, you know, like out to get you. They're trying to be consistent with themselves, and they end up failing as it turns out. Apollinaris was a good guy, but you can see why this view might fail. If it's not apparent yet, we're going to see why soon. Right, but again, Jesus has a human body, human soul. Don't Google this, by the way. They're gonna. Uh, I try to get a nice diagram so I didn't have to write it because I didn't think I'd have a whiteboard. And the views, it's it's not usually accurate. I didn't see anything that was. And so this view is going to deny that Jesus was, by implication, fully human. 
He's going to say Jesus is fully human, but he doesn't have a human spirit. And you're like, uh, contradiction. We're going to see how this uh, is answered. So this leads to a couple of issues now that this council is convened for and that we're going to see are solved. Uh, I don't need this board anymore, sorry. And so the first point is the distinction between the three, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All right? They don't want to be modalists, but they want, want to uh, hold to the equality of these three. What's the distinction between them? The Father is not the Son. They're not the same thing. And then the second question, and you can see that this is directed at Apollinaris. What did the son assume? That is, what did he take on? Not like, what was he thinking about? You know what I mean? Like, what did he assume? What did he take on when he became human? Body, soul, body, soul, spirit, whatever that is. Um, now, that was an easier question to answer. Uh, the second, or the first question we're going to see is a bit more difficult. But fortunately... For these three, they're known as the Cappadocian Fathers. They were, these three are bishops who are writing their own books in the meantime. So imagine between 325 and 381, Christianity is probably, it's probably the most turbulent time in history in many respects. It was nasty. It was really nasty. Like um, the joke during the day was if you asked a, 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 sorry, if a homeless person asked you for money, you would respond with, the father is greater than the son, you know? Like, the, the jokes during the day was all the talk on the streets was about this. And people were outraged, right? It was really polarized. It's nothing like today. We all get along today. And there's basically no disagreement, as you know. <laughs> Nothing's really that changed, is it? But we argue about silly stuff sometimes, too. Um, I wish we'd argue about this more. The Cappadocian Fathers are three bishops that are all kind of nerds, and they end up solving the crisis, and both the Greek and the Western Latin church end up following their lead here. Um, I'm going to be brief here, although the history behind this and their story is fascinating. Um, you've maybe heard of some of these names, and um, Basil, that's always my student's favorite. No, the, the, the thing you put in your food is not named after him. It's a... <laughs> Basil of Cappadocia, technically, or he's called Basil the Great because he was the leader of the three. He was a great bishop, a great administrator. And he was over a lot of stuff that changed the world, right? Him and his sister, by the way, Macrina, um, uh, probably she did it, but back in that day, dudes got the credit. Uh, made the first, it's sad, it's true, it's just all laugh and cry. Um, his, uh, they created the first sort of uh, hospital out of the church. It was kind of a monastery, really, but people would bring their sick, and a lot of the priests there were trained in the Aristotelian medicine of the day. And again, the hospital modeled off of this later through the Middle Ages. He also is behind an, a small academy and other things. Christians create the university. Basil's, it, Basil is one of the uh, inspirations of that. As well, but think of him as the great bishop. He's probably best known for, and I don't, I didn't bring this book, um, but this is one of the classics. And in it, he's ripping on um, all these different heretical views we're talking about. It's called "On the Holy Spirit." It's known as uh, probably the highest and best prose in the patristic era. He could write, and it's beautiful, very readable. If you get a more recent translation, don't get something from the 1800s. 
Um, the second was his little brother, this dude, uh, Gregory of Nyssa. That means he's bishop over Nyssa. Now, Basil was an extrovert. He was a leader. He wanted to do stuff. Gregory liked reading. He liked to lock himself in his closet uh, and just write all day. He's an uber nerd, and he wrote some of the best philosophical theology. You could say the best philosophical theology ever written. And he solves a lot of the crisis. I'm going to be referring to him uh, a lot. He's also married. He's well known to be, he's a bishop and he's married. What happened? Yeah, back then you could be a married bishop. Although he did like to talk about how he and his wife wouldn't do some of the married activities so they could long for God more. What? What? <laughs> That's, that was normal back then. One classic book he wrote is On Virginity. And you're like, you're a married dude. You can't write about that. Well, they chose to be. Uh, well, uh, you know, at least after he was bishop. Um, so nerd, happy marriage. Really, he writes a lot about uh, personal stuff. It's really interesting. And then the third is Basil's college drinking buddy, Gregory of Nazianzus. Rough translation, but not far off. It was the academy back then. They didn't have a university. And Gregory was known as the great um, preacher of the day. Think of him as like Charles Spurgeon. Uh, the highest rhetoric is often attributed to Gregory back in the 300s. And these three together combine to solve the crisis in Christianity in a way that's philosophically consistent and beautiful. So they thought of it this way. They saw two extremes going on. Arius, on the one hand, denying that Jesus is God. Well, see, that's not true. Do you see how this works? He did affirm he's God, but denying that the Son is equal to the Father. The same God as the Father is God. The same level of God. So Arius denies that. And then Apollinaris argues that Jesus is not exactly fully human. So you have denying Jesus is God in every way. The Son is God in the highest form. And that Jesus is fully human. And the other. And the way they thought of it is Apollinaris is really close. He solves a bunch, but he ends up fudging it in the end. And so they argue for this uh, mediation here. And the first reply they want to make, and this is all three of them, they have a lot of different books. I did not bring these books. This is, besides On the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't recommend a book from them. I love these books, but it's, it would, it's, it's, it's really hard to read. They, they reply first to the Arians. How do we think of the relationship of the Son and the Father? Their reply is this. You Arians are thinking of the Father's begetting the Son in temporal time terms. You're thinking of, let's just face it, the Father creating the Son. You think begetting means creating. But no, God's outside of space-time. We alluded to some of this last week. Time can't you know, limit God. God's outside of that. He created that. So when we're talking about the Father begetting, it would be much better to think in terms of eternal. Do you see that? Eternal begetting. This is happening outside of space-time in our terms today. That's the first. I'm going to bring up some more points here in a second. Uh, that begetting, they um, uh, made equivalent to the term in Greek philosophy, generation. The Father generates the Son. Let me give you a hint. I can either create things or I can generate things. This is just called common sense, but it's also Neoplatonism. And it's where they got it right. I can create something, but it's going to be lesser than me, like a robot. Or actually, I can't do that. Like a, a woodwork, I'm not good. I don't know what I can create. 
a book, but it's not on my level. You know what I mean? Like, it's something else than me. It's something other than me. Think of God creating the world as like something much lower than him. I can also generate the proof of that. There's my wife. She's pregnant. Now you know what generation means. Now, when I generate something, I mean, I haven't seen the baby. Well, I guess I have. All the, yeah. But it's not going to be a squirrel. It's not going to be a white oak tree. It's not going to be something. It's going to be human. It will be me. Do you see this? Now, imagine this outside of space-time. My child is everything I am. It's a generated, it's an equal of me. Do you see where this is going? So not only are they saying, Arius, you contradict the Bible, they're saying, Arius, your philosophy sucks. That which generates something is the same essence as whatever generates it. When a white, tree, white oak tree generates something, acorn, it's a white oak tree. Do you see how this works? A kitty generates kitties. Humans generate humans. So if there's father-son talking, God, I, yeah, that's kind of weird, but let's just take God at his word. It must be the exact imprint of the usia. In the same sense, a white oak tree is the exact imprint of the usia. Or a human. Do you see where this is going? This is brilliant and fun. Okay. So that's the first. I kind of jumped the gun because that, I, I just solved the third point here. But... Um, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they're going to agree with origin here. And Neoplatonism, people, philosophy is awesome. They're going to think of the Father and the Son and the Spirit as distinct hypostases. If the spelling is ever different at the end, it's because the difference between plural and singular in Greek is different. And I follow it, but it doesn't translate into English, sorry. The Father and Son, they're each distinct hypostases in the one divine usia. Now, before this day, Side note, hypostases and usia were often seen as synonymous. They weren't. If you ask somebody, if you ask Plato, what's the difference? He would know. Like, he would have a distinction ready, and it's what they ended up running with, right? So they distinguish it for the first time. And we do this in, the, in, in our language, too. I'm a being, right? I'm a being, a human being. What I mean there is I'm a human person. But I just use the word being to mean person. Hypostasis takes that meaning, right? An instantiation of usia. I'm an instantiation of human usia. So are you. Uh, those palabreas out there are instantiations of palabreaness usia. You see how this is working? There's three of those in God. You see how this works? All right. Say again. I'm going to get there in a second. I'm just doing it really rough like right now. But think of it, when you see hypostases, dumb it down to person, but not what we mean by person today, what they meant by person back then, which I'll define how that's different. Ustia, think in terms of the divine being. When you start naming off God's attributes, you're talking about his being. Now, if this is the case, and we will get to definitions soon, if this is the case, then the three hypostases are equal. They're each imprints of the exact same usia. All right, this is different than anything you've ever seen. Have you ever seen a human that partakes in exactly the same human qualities as another human? It's not possible. We're finite beings, y'all. Think about it this way. I only partake in certain qualities of humanness. One race, one gender. I'm not everything that it means to be human. I'm a finite being. Humans are finite beings, but God's an infinite being. 
By definition, God partakes in every quality, good quality, in infinite measure. So when you're talking about God, each hypostasis has to partake in the exact same usia, meaning each of the three are exact imprints of one another. Do you see that? There's one divine usia, they all partake in it. There's three hypostases. I'll make more sense of this. This is, I know it's kind of like, what? But it works. We'll see what I mean in a second. So that's the first reply to the Arians. Don't, let's not get carried away for a second. I added a few more points here to make some things clear. But we're going to clarify that in a second as well. So when we talk about the Arians, just get this point down. They argued that generation is not temporal. It's not in space-time. It's eternal. That solves it, basically, right there. To the Apollinarians, they replied something that is just a catchy line, and this comes from Nazianzus, Gregory of Nazianzus. That's the drinking buddy of Basil. Well, was, and, yeah. and he, he argues that what is unassumed, what is not taken up in the incarnation, cannot be healed. What is unassumed is not healed. All right, so let's go back to here for a second. If Jesus didn't have a human spirit, whatever that means, then our spirits are screwed. Do you see what I'm getting at there? If Jesus didn't have it, just to use blunt language, I'm used to teaching undergraduates, it helps them wake up, right? If Jesus didn't have a human will, like we have a will, then our wills are hopeless. We're going to all get to heaven. We're going to get up there and we're going to like be really excited for a while. And they're going to be like, oh, I want, I, I want to worship me for a while just like I'm used to. Right? We all do this, says Christianity, right? And suddenly, oh, it's the fall all over again. But that's not what happened. Jesus, his human will gets corrected into the divine, right? And so if Jesus wasn't human in the way that we're human in this place, then we can't really be saved. All right? That's why it's heresy, right? Because, again, it's implicitly rejecting that Jesus can possibly save you. Implicitly rejecting. Not explicitly. He doesn't want to say that. Uh, remember that uh, Arius was explicitly saying Jesus can't save you. The son is less than a father, so what's, what's the good news? Be a good person. WWJD, be like Jesus. And that's true to a certain extent, but if that's the good news, well, there's no good news, <laughs> right? So let's not lose sight of that. Now, this is where they're going to get into some definitions and uh, more formulations about how to think about this, although uh, we're most of the way there. So whenever you hear one essence, three hypostases, three persons, that's coming from probably from the Cappadocian Fathers or Tertullian in the West. Um, now, they're going to argue that the usia corresponds to God's being. Name off the divine attributes. You're describing the one usia of God. Essence, nature, whatever you want to call it. Now, hypostasis, or the three hypostases of God, is a bit more difficult to define in English because words mean multiple things. So, I'd prefer that you use this second one. When you think what does hypostasis mean? Think instantiation. And I'm not going to define that. I'm just going to give you the example I already did because it's intuitive, and that's what's beautiful. My dog, Spirit, is an instantiation of Beagle. My other dog, Angel, is an instantiation. We didn't give the names. It sounds super, like, 
weird Christian. It wasn't our idea. <laughs> Spirit and angel. <laughs> My next dog is going to be Arius. <laughs> uh, my angel, whichever one, is another instantiation of beagleness. So you might think person, partaking in an instantiation, an example, an individual example of. The Father is an instantiation of God. The Son is an instantiation of God. The Spirit is an instantiation of God. But unlike us, they partake in every quality of their usia, by definition, in infinite measure. Do you see that? So they're exact imprints. That's the first reason we say there's one God, but that doesn't solve it. We're only 50% of the way. Between you and me, I still think we're saying tritheism. That's three gods, if that's all you think. That's three gods. But we believe there's one God, so how do we get there? Well, great question. Um, this gets at the distinction between the three hypostases and the way to think through this logically. All right? So what is this? And again, if you hear hypostasis, I'm using the original language because when you hear person, guaranteed, you think in terms of Western individualism. Even if even you're in the East today. You think a person has an, their own will. I have a will. My wife has a will. You have a will. Three wills. There you go. That's three people. That's three humans. That's not one. But that's not how they thought of it back then. All right? They, they didn't attribute will to the person. They attribute it to the nature, which is one. All right? God has one will. I mean, the Father and the Son aren't fighting about things. Wait for the Garden of Gethsemane. It makes so much sense of that soon. So what's the distinction between these three hypostases? This is the answer. This is it very plainly put, and then I'll explain it. The answer is eternal relations of origin or just relations of origin. Let's put it really bluntly. It's going to sound weird to you because we don't really teach this well because it's really hard and philosophical, admittedly, right? Think of it this way. There is one source in God. Who's the eternal source of God? Father, I think somebody said that. There you have it. All right? So there you go. The one. How do you distinguish the Father from the Son? It's that simple. I know the word source is confusing because I'm talking outside of space-time. Imagine an eternal source, the Father. We call the Father unbegotten. The Bible's clear the Father begets the Son. Right? What does beget mean? There we go. We've been talking about this. It means generating. There you go. It's an imprinting, much like we do when we have babies, except this is outside of space-time. Do you guys see this? So when Arius says there was a time when he was not, he's applying space-time categories to God. That's improper. We're talking about generation outside of space-time. So the father's the unbegotten one. The son's the begotten one. This is probably pretty... Clear. This is all biblical language, y'all. The spirit is the preceding one. Now, this is where there's some debate between the East and the West. I won't get into all the nitty-gritty. There's enough difficulty today, right? I'm solving it right now. So how can you say there's one God? There's one source, the Father. That's it. It's that simple. Now, you're like, what? There's one source, but it's outside of space-time. Here's the analogy the Cappadocian fathers use. Imagine an eternal fountain. 
right? It doesn't matter what's coming out of it, but you're probably thinking water. The Father's the source. The Son and the Spirit are generated from the source. Always and forever. In the words of, what, Kip and Napoleon Dynamite? Always and forever. Right? The eternal fountain. Imagine that if you like that. All right, there's other analogies they use, but Laura found them confusing, given some confusion in your eyes, which is, it, that's my normal, this is normal after James. First time I heard this, I didn't get it. Took me a while, but keep meditating on this. But because it was confusing to my wife, I'm not even gonna use it. Imagine an eternal fount, one source, two generated. Technically, one generated sun, one spirated spirit. But that's not a word we know, and that's totally okay, all right? So ask Gregory of Nyssa, or traditional Christianity, how is God one? They will answer A, B, one, two. There's two points to know here. How is God one? First of all, God is one because the divine usia is one. And each of the three are the exact imprint of one another. It's using biblical language, by the way. Do you, are you noticing this? Each usia are imprints of the same, uh, each hypostasis is partaking in the same usia, or you can say each of the three is an imprint of the other. There's no difference, y'all, between the Father and the Son, except one is unbegotten, eternal fount, one is begotten. All right? So the first part of the answer is to say the essence is one, and the essence is indivisible, and thus, in crudent and exact terms, one. The second part of the answer is to say there is one source in God. There's not three sources. The Son is not the unbegotten. The Son is the begotten one. There's one source in God, and thus logically, philosophically speaking, it is proper and it is right to say that God is one. See how this works? This is dense. They just took Neoplatonism, corrected it, made, made sense of it all through the Bible, Right, using the Bible to get, capture all the distinctions. And now you have a philosophical way of saying how in a sense God is three, how in a sense God is one. And there's not really, if you think mystery means contradiction, there's not mystery here. Now, how does this all work out? Yes, there's mystery. I've never been outside of space-time. You haven't either, I suspect. I've never seen a being where there's only three of them and they're exact imprints of one, one another from all eternity. I mean, I've never seen it with my own eyes. I've experienced God through, you know, like through intuition, through faith, through reason, all the time. And it's called your life, right? I mean, in, in a sense, Gregory of Nyssa is going to joke. I mean, that's God. I mean, God's holding that together. I'm, I experience God, but I don't experience that. So this is a way of philosophically making sense of how God is three in one. Does this all make sense? Now, we're not done yet exactly, um, but uh, we're close. We're, we're getting at the end of the Council of Constantinople. Now, before I move on, if you want to, like, take pictures of this, guaranteed the number one question is going to be, what does generation mean? You know, the unbegotten, begotten, ungenerated, generated. If you want to take a picture of this, A. Hodge who's a prince, uh, it doesn't make any sense. He's a theologian from Princeton, last century two centuries ago now, in the 1800s. And he defines it in a way that's readable, understandable in English. If I use Nyssa, it would be better, but it wouldn't be readable. Um, and so I love Hodge. 
there you go. So, again, just in case you guys weren't here last week, there's a strong desire, I think, to dumb down the Trinity, to make it just so everybody's, aha, oh, the Trinity's like water, right? Ice, water. I don't do that on purpose because that's just modalism. So if it feels like this is difficult, it has to be. Otherwise, you end up contradicting yourself. And I don't want us to have contradictory theology. But I also don't go on the, guys, please understand when you go, like, you know, evangelize to somebody, you don't, like, start here or end here. I mean, if they know philosophy, if they know Greek philosophy, I will nerd out all that. And they will, like, they will be really excited. But I am not going to go there. Like, don't think, like, oh, my God, I wasn't saved. God, save me now. Please, God. No, this is just intellectually making sense of what you already believe by saying, Jesus saved me. Jesus has a father. Jesus sends a spirit. There you go. So what is eternal generation? Eternal generation is this, an eternal personal act of the father. We're in, oh, I don't need to read this. You know what, are we sufficiently, should we move on here? Do you want me to read it? All right, let's read it. Eternal generation of the son is an eternal personal act of the father, of his person, of his hypostases. Wherein, by necessity of nature, not by choice, Arius, Arius argued it was a choice, he generates the person, not the essence, of the son by communicating to him the whole indivisible substance of the Godhead, the Usia, without division, alienation, or change, so that the son is the express image of his father's person. This is like Hebrews. Hebrews 1 right here, right? And eternally continues, the son eternally continues, not from the father, this gets technical, not from the father, but in the father, thus equal, and the father and the son. All right? Now, I don't know what this is like to have a generated part of me eternally with me because I'm limited by space-time. But when my daughter grows up into maturity, she will be my equal. Do you see that? And that's what this is getting at. Imagine generation happening out of space-time. That's it. Wow. Thank you, Neoplatonism. Um, Augustine was Neoplatonic before he converted to Christianity. A lot of Christians back in that day thought it solved a lot of problems, but it presented other ones, and that's what we're seeing it being solved and perfected. Well, I think so. It might just be a lot of words, and that's okay. Keep meditating on it. Take, take a picture of this. Keep thinking about it. When you read the Bible, and you, know, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Like, what's going on there? And now you know. It's either that or it makes no sense, and it's irrational. You can take your pick. I choose rational. Uh, and this is just basic Christianity. It's difficult basic Christianity. So now we have the three Cappadocian fathers. They have written books and stuff and nerded out. They're pastors, remember? They're lead pastors back then. But the council hasn't been called yet. But the reason I've just spent so much time on them is because they've already solved it. And when the councils convene, they just kind of shout out to their books. Like, they've already solved it. Here's what's going on. So it's very simple. We've already talked about the Council of Nicaea. That's really small and blurry on my screen, too. Nicaea, the city here that we mentioned it was the second choice of a city in Asia Minor or present-day Turkey. Constantinople is the capital of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. It was a major city, and that's where the next council is going to take place 
in 381. And we're going to see the third and fourth councils later. If you guys are super confused today, the third and the fourth councils, fourth councils are easier. They're much easier to understand, but even better than that, it requires you to use your imagination and have fun with it, right? The great thing about the third and the fourth councils is it doesn't, here's the answer. It says this, here's the extremes, don't do that. Think between the lines, right? And so, so much fun today is challenging because we're solving something that's really lofty and well, challenging. So this uh, council is called by Emperor Theodosius, not a major point or anything, but of course, uh, Constantine is dead by now. Um, and this is the Nicene Creed that you all know and are familiar with if you've ever heard of the Nicene Creed. You don't read the 325 one because it just isn't quite there yet. And it, it's this council that edits it to the point that, okay, now we're being consistent with ourselves. Okay, now this makes sense. Um, and they solve some of the problems of Arianism. So there you have it. Uh, I'm going to be looking at the creed in more detail in a second. So we'll read that in a second. The creed comes out of this. Here's the important point. After 325, uh, Arianism was really popular. After 381, it is decisively defeated. Not because, oh, all you people are stupid and I don't like you and I want my position to win. It, th their position didn't work, this Nicene position, uh, through the Cappadocian Fathers does work. All right, so we have the, uh, the end of Arianism. It affirms in this as well, remember we just saw, uh, the Apollinarianism, the view of Apollinaris. Uh, he didn't mean to, but he denied that Jesus is human in every sense. And this is going to be uh, fighting back at him. We're going to see, uh, you can't read this. My goodness, is that blurry. My, my bad, y'all. I think it's just too small. That's okay. And then, of course, we've seen this already. There's one usia of God. There's one substance of God. God is one. There's not like, don't think of it as like the father's, like the powerful and wrathful one. The son's the loving and like the one that became human one or something. And the spirit's like the omnipresent one. They're all three, those things. They're, they're eternal. They're infinite. They're wise. They're loving. And you can't pit the two against one another. The Father and the Son aren't in disagreement about whether to save humanity, right? And the cross is proof of that. We'll mention that more in a second. There are, as we know, three hypostases of God. This is coming out from origin, but perfected through especially Gregory of Nyssa. Um, and they're each God. They're each fully usia. They're imprints of one another, in a similar way, but imperfect analogy, that a child is an imprint of the father or mother. The creed was quickly and universally used in church services. It was like, it was like imagine, imagine really hungry for knowledge nerds. Remember the, like, I mean, the homeless were no, ner, known back then to nerd out about Arian theology and hating Arian theology and being Nicene. So imagine for a second a document coming out that's actually consistent with itself, people ate this up, and they would recite it every week. It's something that people longed for. It's hard to kind of reenact that today unless you've been to a culture that's never seen a Bible before or something like that. 
Now, uh, okay, you can kind of read that. If you can't, feel free to get closer. Uh, there's chairs over here. I'm not going to make really big points or anything, um, but it's kind of cool to read the first version of the Nicene Creed in 325, and then what they added and subtracted, mostly added, in the second version. All right, now, things I want to note, that's not real important. Here's the big clause that was added. All right, so the, the, the Son is begotten of the Father before all worlds, which doesn't translate great into English, meaning there is no sense in which time applies to the Son's begetting. There's no sense. It's absurd to think that. It would be as if I could have a baby shoe or a baby turtle or a I can only generate that which is mine that which is me all right so that's that's the first clause that's kind of really cool and then secondly they're adding a lot of this language as sort of a shot at Apollinaris for denying the full humanity of the son and so it, it adds some of these clauses we're familiar with some of this from the Apostles Creed so this isn't new never think of this as new this is just uh, Christians trying to be consistent with themselves, right? They've been worshiping the Son and the Spirit since forever. That didn't start here. Please don't think that. They're just using words to actually explain why and how that's consistent with itself. So the Son was crucified, the Jesus was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again, according to scriptures, ascended into heaven and sitteth, sitteth at the right hand of God the Father. Of course, this is in virtue of the Son being fully human. It's also a metaphor. I don't think there's like a divine throne in heaven that's just like floating. You know what I mean? Like, like this means the Son has all power and authority of the Father. Well, of course he does. He's God. What's new here? A human being is interceding. A human being is holding the world together. That's pretty cool. Now, I'm intentionally being a little provocative now. How is Jesus, God, and human at the same time is going to be what the next two councils solve? That's going to be the next two weeks, all right? And that's so fun. I find it the highlight. Trinity is more of my mind is blown. I had no idea. You're saying God has a source? Well, an eternal source, yes. Really? Yeah. How else do you account for God being one? Well, it's like a mystery. Uh, no. It's, you're just saying it's irrational. Right? You don't want to do that. And that's what they're trying to do as well. If you don't like this, that's okay. This isn't everyone's cup of tea. It's my cup of tea. Um, <laughs> I have so much fun. Uh, so uh, this is a clause that is really, does anybody have any Eastern Orthodox friends? Have they ever like brought up like theology with you and tried to argue? Have they ever brought up the filioque clause? The, you believe in two gods, Western Christian. You ever heard that said? Yeah, they like to, uh, this, is, this is the f most fun debate in church history, and I'll see, we'll see if you can capture some of it. The original creed did not have and from the son. The one that is ecumenical, the Greeks are right, it's ecumenical, just said that the spirit proceeds from the father. All right, you see it there, who proceeds from the father. In this, is some debate about this, but the 600s AD through the 800s AD, there were some crises in the Western church, Right? And so the Western church added the clause and from the son. Doesn't really matter why, but they didn't do it without, they did it without asking the Eastern church. 
And Western Christianity holds to the spirit proceeds from the father through the son. And the Greek church freaks out because they think we're saying, and some Western Christians do say this, that there's two sources in God. There's the father and there's the son. That's binitarianism. That's two gods. That's two gods, Western Christian. You're like, nope, but there's an answer. No, there's only one source. It's the father and the spirit proceeds by way of the son doesn't matter. I don't want to nerd out any more than that. But if you ever run into Eastern Orthodox Christians, you can hug them and love on them, and they'll probably bring this point up. (laughs) Um, We can move on. This is, in a nutshell, what I'm saying. Uh, This word uh, just means and from the sun. It doesn't really matter for today's purposes. But in Eastern Christianity, they see the Father as the divine source, period, generating the sun, spirating the spirit. What's spiration versus generation? It's whatever makes the spirit and the sun different ever so slightly. Yeah. That's where you can't say anything more. We don't really know. But there's a difference between the way the Holy Spirit is of the Father and the Son is of the Father. The Latin, that's the Western church, sees it sort of like this. This isn't a great visualization here. But if you can imagine, they would say the Holy Spirit proceeds um, from the Father, the divine source, by way of the Son. All right? Uh, does it really matter? Surprisingly, yes, but that's not a topic for today. Right? So let's move on to, let's see if the interwebs works. It takes a while. I'm going to blame my computer as long as the internet is connected. Have you guys ever heard of Lutheran satire? It's hilarious. Lutherans are just hilarious. Martin Luther was kind of obnoxious, and he was really funny. He's kind of mean, but he's really funny, and Lutherans take after him. Unfortunately, there's less funny people in our tradition. Um, So notice this is not Reformed satire, and it is not loading. Um, I really hope it does. Oh, that didn't work. I'm going to get this to work. Don't you worry. The Internet's working. If not, it's not a huge deal. We can do it. Um, We can run this next week towards the beginning. It's going to be bleeding into question and answer time soon, either way. Was the internet password, does anybody know if it was changed here? The Wi-Fi? should be the same. Then I will get this to run next week. Let's forget about it for now. Um... Mm, no, we're not going to do that. Wait, wait, wait. Do I, oh, I didn't bring it. Ah. Um, if you're confused about anything today, which is natural, by the way. The first time I thought that, or heard about this, I'm like, Greek philosophy. Ugh, ugh. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, what? Um, if, if you want to read more about it, I'd highly recommend. I actually have really readable stuff. Like, anyone can read the top row of books I brought up here. So after Q&A time, come up here, take pictures of the books, buy it on whatever. Um, one, I, you know, I was going to say Amazon, but they're like kind of evil, but I still use them. It's terrible. Uh, it's true, you know, like, um, so this is the most approachable introduction that's really practical with theology and how the Trinity changes everything. It's called Delighting in the Trinity. I'm going to highlight this one because I think everyone in here should own it. And then the second one I'd highlight, and you guys can come up, pick, and I'll put this on the right so you know it's like extra highlighted. The second one, and everything by Fred Sanders. If you ever want to like Google Trinity lecture, 
don't. Unless you, because the, inter, the internet, you're going to find all kinds of just garbage on this topic. It's hard. And there's a lot of different, like, anyway. Uh, Fred Sanders is a great evangelical example of the classical Trinitarian view, which is awesome. But the great thing about this book is it doesn't just talk about the Trinity. It's, that's not even the point. It's not going to use all the words I just used. It's going to show how Christianity is implicitly in, uh, Trinitarian, even in your own church, in ways you never would think to see. And it goes through Christian practices, Christian beliefs, and how everything that we do is explicitly or implicitly Trinitarian. If you believe Jesus saved you, I can work this out for you, but if you believe he saved you, you're saying something profoundly Trinitarian. And here's the thing historically, y'all, and the biggest question I think I got last week was this. I still don't see why Arianism necessarily fails, which, fair enough, right? Philosophically, why does it fail? Here's the thing. Look at Christian history, look at all the people that were Arian, and see where their movements went. Without exception, they deny that Jesus can save you, and they say your salvation's by being a good person. So whatever it is, whatever view we're talking about, think of, and I'm borrowing from Millard Erickson here, when he says that Christian history is like theology's laboratory, right? You look at Christian, and you see like how ideas have consequences, how some ideas lead to biblical faith, and other ones lead over time, and we're seeing this today. We're seeing it on Instagram, guys, all the time. And it's people that have rejected this. And so the importance of this is awesomely powerful. And yet what's great about Fred Sanders' uh, book is it just shows how we're all implicitly here. And we all believe this. If you're clinging to Jesus as Yahweh, you're saying it. You're saying it right there. So I'd highlight those two books. But before we move on, um, and I, I can highlight some other ones later, but all these books are great. Uh, before we move on, I thought we should end, obviously, in question and answer time. We have 14 minutes.